Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to an election special podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'm joined by our editor Jason Cowley and Scottish author Jerry Hassan to talk about what's happening north of the border. Then Stephen Bush and George Eaton talk to me about the polls as they're still tied. It's the day before polls open and one of the biggest stories of this election has been Scotland, the SNP's incredible surge there and the concomitant decline of Scottish Labour. I'm joined by the writer Jerry Hassan and by NS editor Jason Cowley to talk about it. Um, first of all, Jerry, you're obviously much more in tune with things on, on the ground. What is the mood like at the moment in Scotland? Um, the, mood's, the mood's a mixture of things. There's an awful lot of excitement and, and there's an awful lot of people thinking things are a way to change. Um, SNP people, SNP voters and and there's a, a, quite a bit of uh, apprehension as well in uh, parts of Scotland beyond Labour, Lib Dems and Tories. I think part of Scotland is sort of pausing and holding its breath here, reflecting on what it's a way to do. And in, in, in certainly an element of Scotland, there's this sense of we may be a way to pass seamlessly from uh, a couple of generations of Labour one-party dominance uh, without, without much of a breath to um, SNP one-party dominance and, uh, you know, What's what's the kind of limitations and, and and issues that's going to throw up? So, if you had to make a bet, uh, looking at the fifty nine seats in Scotland, so how many do you think will be SNP by May the eighth? Yeah, this is something that's going to be proved completely wrong in, 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 <laughs> in just over twenty four hours. Um, <clears throat> I've always been really cautious on the SNP surge, and initially, when the first polls came out, I thought it was soft. The SNP we clearly it's not, and it's got bigger um, uh, until until the last week or so. I think the SNP members start with six seats. I think they, they're going to win uh, at least 45, 46. And I think a success for Labour, i.e. Not, not a complete and utter Armageddon, is getting into double figures. So winning 12 would be, when they've got 41 now, would be um, you know terrible, but not the complete wipeout. But a complete wipeout for the Lib Dems then? Yeah, I think I think well they'll hold Orkney and Shetland because they've held that every election since nineteen fifty. They may hold Charles Kennedy and, and one other. So they'll win between two and three and the Tories will win between one and two. And what about the kind of really high uh, profile seats? So Renfrewshire East, which is Jim Murphy's seat. Do you think he's gonna hold on there? Well, Labour <clears throat> Labour seem to be fighting an election where they, they now see how bad it could be and they're particularly targeting resources on Jim Murphy's seat. 
uh, Douglas Alexander and Paisley and Margaret Curran in Glasgow East. I think of those, Jim Murphy's got the best chance of holding out because he's got um, years of excellent organisation. He's got a Tory vote to squeeze as well. Yeah, I mean, I was <laughs> up in um, in Paisley just before Easter, actually, and I was I was incredibly surprised, having then now more recently gone back to Worcester, which is an English uh, Labour Tory marginal. The mood is just so completely different. Mm. There is a feeling that things are changing, whereas I find the mood in uh, in, in, in marginals in, in England I've been has been very much kind of, I feel like people are going to go back to, well, actually, things are getting better. Let's just maybe not mm. make a change and, and stick and take the course. And that's not at all what it feels like in, in Scotland. Mm. Um, I'm going to just bring Jason in, because I know this is a subject that's um, interested you for a really long time. When did it all go wrong for Labour in Scotland? Well, that's um, a big question. Actually, Jerry's probably better placed to answer that as a former Labour Party member and author of The Strange Death of Labour Scotland. But it seems to me that it goes back decades. When I first started visiting Scotland in the early 90s, it was, I went, I, I, the first time I went, I went, well, I've been many times um, on holiday, but I went as a journalist for the first time around about 93 to write a, a piece on um, the renaissance of Scottish literature and Scottish culture. So that anti-Thatcher moment mm. and w- what it did for a whole generation of Scottish artists. And I brought myself into a hotel in Edinburgh for a week, visited writers, publishers, academics. So it was a very interesting week. Coincided actually with a heat wave. So Edinburgh seemed to me the best city in the world to live in at that point. Um, but what struck me back then was how many of these people were not only disenchanted with Labour, they were disenchanted with the political arrangement at Mm. Westminster and and, and the British Union. None of them were SNP supporters at this point. They were supporters essentially, many of them were supporters of independence, but some of them were looking to the the new devolution settlement that, that would be coming after the Blair landslide in 97. But to me, as someone talking to writers an artist, you got a sense that something was fundamentally wrong. The Scots wanted something different. It was a different culture. It was a different society. And that's what's really informed my thinking on this ever since, which mm. was why back before, even back before the 2011 Scottish election, I was pretty convinced that the SNP would win a landslide and would be where we were today. And I knew at some point there would be a referendum as we've had it. But Labour, Jerry, you should probably come in here. These are deep structural <coughs> forces at play here, yeah. the decline of Labour in Scotland. Yeah, they are. I mean, firstly, Scottish Labour never won a majority of the popular vote. And, and, and while that's self-evident, or should be self-evident, what happened is when the party won lots and lots of Westminster seats, 1987 it wins 50, 1997 it wins 56, when there's no Scottish Tory MPs by that point, a lot of those Scottish Labour MPs, ones that are actually causing Ed Miliband a bit of a problem now and, and in this election by saying he has to be even harder on the SNP, those people mistook that first-past-the-post mandate as the fact that Scottish Labour spoke for Scotland. Yes. That got them into a whole host of things. Those people said things like, why did you give away control of the Scottish Parliament because you introduced PR? Why have you done this in local government introducing PR? And, and there was a kind of... Sh- innate Labour chauvinism that was already always there, it gave it gave permission to. And combining that with being a political establishment is a kind of really bad uh, bad mix. And, and Labour, I, mean, I never like making a comparison between politics and business, but Labour became, by their success, they became um, an organisation that was driven by its internal voices. It thought, we've got the biggest stack of votes, we don't need to care what people who are not Labour think. And that's always when you do that, the beginning of the end. Well, that's interesting that you say that, because you could level that criticism now at the SNP, couldn't you? Mm -hmm. That there is an assumption that the SNP is the authentic voice of of Mm -hmm. Scotland and and the conflation between the two. Yeah. 
I was I was thinking that as I was saying <laughs> that, and, and uh, yes, um, this point of, are we at this this peak SNP where if they won all fifty nine seats or fifty seven of the fifty nine is it the beginning of the end? Um, the way some people in the SNP say a vote for the SNP is synonymous with Scotland. Yes, that is a perilous, you know, anti democratic, anti pluralist point that is that is really really. Um, unhelpful. The SNP in all that and having some of those constraints, they're not at the point where they, they're still winning converts. They're, they're still a rising tide and a rising tribe. When they get to the point where they're only listening to their internal voices, that will be when the, the moments of crisis and ret- retraction uh, begin to start. And from that point of view, Jason, do you think that Nicola Sturgeon has been a, a, a better leader for the SNP at this point in time than Alex Salmond? I think would so. I mean, I mean, Alex mm. is a deeply divisive figure and he, he took the SNP as far as he could take them, I think, and very wisely stepped aside. But what he was able to do, particularly during the final years of his leadership, and I think Jerry would agree, was bring in to the, to the system a lot of those people who were outside of it. In other words, people who didn't vote, people who were deeply disaffected, the very poor Jerry. Mm. And these people now have expectations. They may have voted yes in the independence mm. referendum. They'll be voting for the SNP this time around. And this is also a danger for peak SNP, is what happens if they're not able to deliver for these people, those people who are complaining to politicians about their benefit sanctions, the the punitive welfare cuts, and how um, that's impacting upon their lives. And now they've got some kind of mm. political hope and they believe some kind of political representation. Well, let's wargame that because that is a a very interesting point, is that there's been a kind of dual running from the SNP, both incumbents in Holyrood and also as insurgents elsewhere. Mm. And if they are a big block at Westminster, Mm. will people start to have... You know, expectations that they're going to be able to pass legislation or they're going to be able to affect legislation. So I want to ask you, um, Jerry, actually, the, how the mechanics of this going to work? If, for example, mm. Ed Miliband decided to try and form a government mm. and the SNP was supporting him on a seat-by-seat basis, mm. who gets to make that call within the SNP? Is that Nicholas Sturgeon's call or is it the leader at Westminster's call? Um, I think it's the, the first answer will be, it will be, they will hope, a collective leadership that, uh, that Nicola Sturgeon plays the main part in it. You will have the issue of uh, there are going to be at least at least three large egos in the SNP <laughs> in that Westminster group in terms of Alex Salmond, Angus Robertson and Stuart Hosey. Um, the SNP in the 70s, when it was a very different, less mature party, got into, obviously before the Scottish Parliament, got into a whole set of issues about who who, who set down the line for the SNP parliamentary group. Was it was it the MPs or was it the SNP headquarters? And there was huge tensions in, in a period that was a hung parliament and, and political and constitutional uh, crisis. The SNP, the, the one thing they do not want to do is be left with, with the, 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 the terrible mantle on them that they, they bring down a Labour government and introduce a Tory government, because that's one of the great, you know, not myths but folklores of Scotland that you know they brought down the Callaghan uh, Labour government so they will be trying to do vote by vote influence under a minority Labour government or or a minority uh, Tory government. And uh, to just to bring you back Jason uh, do you think that there mm. will be a lot of tactical voting in Scotland both against Scottish Labour and both against the SNP do you think there'll be unionists of all parties voting against the SNP candidate? Yes, but also I think there'd be tactical voting against the Labour candidates where who have been in power for so long. There'd be a lot of um, those who don't usually vote might vote SNP despite mm. Labour, some Lib Dems might even, even, even some Tories. Well, that's a surprise. But I think there'd be tactical voting throughout Scotland, perhaps in the borders you might see in Michael Moore's seat, the Tories come through mm. and win their, win their second Scottish seat. I've heard in Edinburgh South there's potential for a Tory victory there. 
Um, I was picking up from a Labour source yesterday that Labour were hopeful of holding on to 12 seats, which seems high to me. Um, and I don't know who are those people rallying behind the obvious Labour voters. I think Jim Murphy will hold on, because if you look at the Ashcroft polls, there's good potential for tactical voting. Mm. Lib Dems perhaps mm. supporting Labour to get to keep Jim in against the SNP candidate. The Douglas seat is very interesting, Douglas Alexander's seat, where you went to, Helen, where I, I thought he, he would lose, although I was picking up yesterday from inside Labour that they're quite confident that he might... Which is quite off. impressive if you look at the Ashcroft polls, because Murray Black is now 11 points ahead, up from being 8 points ahead, which he was when I yeah, visited there. The Ashcroft polls are, doesn't I think what prompt by name. The big, yeah. the big flaw of the Ashcroft polls, and we, we discover tomorrow the results on Friday, is the failure to name candidates. Mm. We saw that with the difference between the ICM poll in Sheffield Hallam yeah. and the Ashcroft poll, where in the Ashcroft poll, Clegg's behind. We saw the ICM poll, Clegg's seven clear once he was named. Douglas Alexander is very respected in his constituency. His father was a very distinguished minister in, in the area. I mean, he, he's well known there. He's got every chance of hanging on, I think, because of the incumbents. It was notable, actually. I mean, maybe they did this for me. But when I went out canvassing on the doorstep, mm. the number of people who said, oh, you know, I work with your mum at the hospital mm. or, you know, we, I was in the Labour Association mm. in the mm. 70s. I mean, he's, you know, he's been the MP there since 97 by election there. So, mm. yeah, he's mm. had ample chance to get mm. bedded in. Should we just, before we wrap up, touch on the possible reconfiguration of the union, mm. Jerry? Mm. The, 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 something that we in the New States have been arguing for. Mm. For some time mm. and are certainly hopeful for a federal moment, a near federal moment or whatever it might be. Well the, first, the most obvious question off the back of that Jerry I suppose is um, the SNP have played down the idea that they want a second referendum. Mm. Do you see that that creeping back onto the agenda maybe around the time of the Hollywood elections next year? Yes, um, it, it's a very very nuanced one the SNP have to play because at the moment the polls show that um, there isn't a majority, clear majority for independence uh, that, that moves between the Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. slight yes lead and a slight uh, lead for the union. What the SNP need to do, I think, is they need to practically put this on the back burner for a period to allow it to return at a natural moment. Mm. That that means taking political leadership. Um, so at the moment, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP leadership have, have taken this kind of transition point of saying, this is not a vote for independence now in the election, but we will only bring this about basically with the will of the people, but or if material circumstances change, but haven't really identified what they might be other than the European uh, referendum. They have to, I think, put it to bed in a way to, to let it rise naturally because Scotland cannot remain on permanent political campaigning and we're not going to have a referendum next year or the year after. It has to come when fundamentally something changes and the real fundamental will be when yes move into a significant opinion poll which hasn't happened, doesn't look like it's going to happen for the next uh, you know couple of, of years. They have to be in a lead of somewhat 60% plus 65-35 and then they would, they would go and with a very short campaign, not of three years but of something like three months. And one of the things that Labour have been pushing very hard in Scotland is this idea idea that full fiscal autonomy, essentially mm. control of their own budget and the ability to raise their own taxes, mm. leaves what I think Labour call a kind of £8 billion black hole. Mm. 
Is that going to be something that the SNP will therefore ask for in, if they're trying to negotiate greater powers for Scotland? Well, the, the SNP have a number of red, red lines and, and, and underneath it all is, is Scotland's voice and Scotland's interests and then behind that, the, the aspiration for full uh, fiscal autonomy. I do think it's interesting that given we are now seven months after the independence referendum, which was won um, for the Union, although clearly not settled in any, any sense, is that the, the SNP haven't done any work at all, any detailed work on full uh, fiscal autonomy. And so what they've done is, some of us thought in the in the campaign that when this came up in the IFS figures of the seven point six billion, um, you know, that would be taken from Scottish monies if it's fully implemented, that it would actually Jim Murphy and others would get traction with it. Hasn't had any traction at all. Um, one is I think because the political mood in Scotland's changed. Secondly, the SNP haven't rode with it, and also people just feel it's in the distance. But if Scotland does have autonomy. Uh, there will be, you know, some day of uh, reckoning of of, of some kind. And for that, somebody that is uh, for this has to do some detailed work. And Jason, just to ask you finally, uh, what would you like to see? What's the ideal kind of constitutional convention and and resettlement, do you think? Wow. Um, I certainly, I think a constitutional convention is is necessary. I mean, not least to move on from this ridiculous first-past-the-post voting system, which which we might see... um, the SNP win, say, 45% of the vote in Scotland, but perhaps win 100% of the seats. UKIP having 13% of the vote nationwide and maybe having one seat. Mm. I mean, it can't go on. It's it's quite preposterous. I live in a safe seat. There's been absolutely no activity. Talk, say, Tory seats. There's been absolutely no activity. Um, we need we need to look at um, the English question. Um, what sort of political institutions does England itself want? We need to look at the devolution settlement, which isn't working clearly. We need to look at English votes on English laws. We need to look at Scottish fiscal autonomy. We need to look at the, the arrangements with Wales and Northern Ireland. I mean, these are, these are significant questions and issues that, because the British state has blundered on year by year, decade, decade by decade, and because we don't have a written constitution, we like the sense that we can fiddle and, and fudge and we can use British wisdom and pragmatism to get by but at the, the strains are too great now and i think people maybe in some cases aren't quite aware to what extent devolution has happened for example i was talking to it's a big feminist issue the fact that there are such strict restrictions on abortion in northern ireland yes. and so many people come over to the to the mainland yes. for that and people don't realize that 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 you can have and and i think very few people realize that northern ireland has its own political parties essentially um so we just generally the level of understanding is is quite low mm. but um i'm sure this is a subject we will attend to i know it's something that um exercises you jason um, and the smp is clearly one that exercises you jerry so mm. hopefully we'll we'll chat about this again when there will be some kind of answer even if not a government in the future thank you Now, as we head into the election, the polls are still neck and neck. Most pollsters are showing Labour and the Tories tied within the margin of error, which is three points. Um, so I'm joined by Staggers editor Stephen Bush and our politics editor George Eaton to discuss who really feels like they're ahead. Um, I'm going to start with you, George, because you had an interview with Neil Kinnock um, this week in the magazine in which he warned of a repeat of what we call from 1992 the shy Tories phenomenon. People who aren't willing to admit that they're going to vote for a right-wing party, but on the day they turn out and do it. How worried are Labour about that happening? I do think Labour at large are hugely worried about it, although it is always a a danger and it is a historic memory that those who experienced 92 um, always have in mind. 
Um, but pollsters have adjusted their methodologies to account for this. So, for instance, if people who voted Tory in 2010 say they don't know, pollsters such as Mori assume that half of them will go on to vote Tory. Um, but it's it is it is a risk, and, and um, it was interesting to me that 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 Kinnock flagged it up um, because you know, he is someone who who probably has uh, studied the shy Tories more than anyone else, given they cost him. Uh, the chance to be Prime Minister. And talking of echoes of 92, Labour tonight are holding a rally in Leeds. Uh, not forgetting, or maybe forgetting, the precedent of 1992 when the Sheffield rally is kind of... Uh, is held up as the moment when it kind of all went wrong for them as an emblem of their of their failure. What's the thinking behind having an eve of election rally? Yes, I mean, I think it's um, to give the campaign some final momentum. Um, Ed Miliband, although there have been some missteps in the last week, such as the Edstone. And, um... <laughs> I hope the Edstone is there. I really do. <laughs> I think... Um, the consensus is still among Labour and, and and the media that he has had a, a good campaign, that he has exceeded expectations. So it's to galvanise the activists and Labour think, you know, particularly important on the day is that their activists are out there getting the vote out. And that, they think, gives them an edge over the Tories. In, so in how big is how big is the venue? How many people are they expecting? I don't know the size, actually, but it, you'd assume it's going to be several hundred. Mm. And um, you'd assume a decent number of the of the shadow cabinet will be there. It's also close to Miliband's constituency of Doncaster, of course. So it's uh, so although Yorkshire is an inaus- inauspicious location for a pre-election rally, uh, it does make sense from that perspective. And Stephen, you wrote yesterday um, a blog post is worryingly titled, Are Labour Losing?, uh, which attracted a lot of attention, in which you contested they had this this wobbly Thursday that uh, happens before polling day. Uh, what happened on Labour's own wobbly Thursday? Um, so there was this strange outbreak of panic. Uh, so I do this regular feature, check it out on the website, Podcast Fans, where I ask people what's going on in the doorstep, which mainly consists of talking to Tory volunteers, Liberal volunteers, Labour volunteers and crucially Labour organisers because they have the biggest professional uh, staff of field operatives of any of the parties and they all suddenly you know as if on cue started freaking out at the same time across pretty you know across all of their targets both the mainstays that's the seats they already hold and their target seats this same panic that when they switched from identifying their voters to their get out the vote operations which is what they do in the last week where they solely focus on Here's the election, here's the polling centre, you don't need your card to vote, what time are you thinking of voting? So on the day, they can run around the constituency, knocking on as many doors and getting their vote out. And the promise wasn't holding up like it was meant to. You're going to have to explain to us what the promise is. It's just the number of people who say they're going to vote Labour. They promise they vote Labour. They promise they'll vote Labour. And it doesn't seem to be holding up as uh, they would expect. And, of course, the thing you've got to remember about Labour's organiser class is they are, for the most part, about 20 years younger than the average activist. Um, they are not, you know, excessively well paid. And they're, so they're living... It's quite easy for them to send each other mad. Uh, so it is hugely possible that the reason for this wobble was that every organiser talks to at least one other organiser. And between them you have this thing go, oh, it's bad for us, it's bad for you, oh, God. But... It then fed through to this movement around the centre, also on Thursday and Friday, to restart this, oh, Ed can stay if uh, Labour lose, it's a two-term project. And then that got back to the peripheries and people went, oh, why are they doing that? Does that mean everyone else's data is bad? And I got this text, which was half joking, half serious, which was, you know, dude, where's my swing? 
because the polls all say there is a swing from Labour, sorry, to Labour from the Conservatives. But people on the ground don't feel like they're picking up a swing. They don't have that sense of the wind at their backs than they did maybe in 2012, than they did in, say, the Ealing Southall by-election, um, than Scottish campaigners certainly did in the 2010 general election. And so people are did start to get a bit antsy. But the big question, to go back to the point about the ghosts of 1992, is whether or not it's an imagined panic. Labour basically think they will lose every election. Um, even 97. Even 97, yeah. In 19, and, and yeah, the, the Blairs were terrified they would lose in 2001 to William Hague. So late, there is definitely, I would say, a widespread panic among um, Labour staff. There's also a panic among a lot of their MPs, but MPs always in the last bit of a campaign start to think they'll lose their seat. That's one of the reasons why campaigns start to make worse and worse decisions, because all the people who need to sign things off are like, yep, right, Ed Stone, sounds brilliant. Right, I need to run back to my constituency and make sure that my majority's fine. Um, but yeah, there is, there is a worry, and it is quite widespread. So, George, if we look at um, if we go into the the polls, it was it was always the kind of conventional wisdom that the Tories needed a seven point lead to get an overall majority. Scotland has now obliterated that inbuilt advantage from first past the post for Labour. If it turns out that they go in on neck and neck on sort of thirty three, thirty four, that looks like it will translate into slightly more seats for the Tories. What happens then? Yes, yeah, so the consensus among most of the forecasters and among senior figures in both main parties is that the Tories will have the most seats and, and the most votes. And in that situation, uh, David Cameron will either have enough seats with the Lib Dems and potentially the support of the DUP uh, to command the confidence of the Commons and, and to govern for another term or, or for as long as he can. Uh, alternatively, and this is the outcome that most people think is more likely, he won't have enough seats and there will be an anti-Tory majority made up of Labour, the SNP and small or other small parties such as Plaid Cymru and, and the SDLP. And David Cameron will then have a choice. He either uh, resigns at that point and says, it's clear I can't continue, and Ed Miliband becomes Prime Minister and gets the chance to pass a, a Queen's speech and to win the confidence of the House. Or Cameron clings on and um, goes to a vote, a confidence vote or, or vote on the Queen's speech, even though he fears he will lose it, simply because I think the Tories feel the longer he's in Downing Street for, the more he appears to be the legitimate Prime Minister. And they want to delegitimise a Labour government at birth, so that the original sin of Labour will be seen to have removed the winner of the election um, and to have done a dirty deal with the SNP. Well, I've, there's probably very little more speculation that we can do at this point until the um, actual numbers come in. So we'll uh, we'll probably try and lure you in to do a, an election special podcast when we when we know the results. But for now, um, please, everybody, go out and vote. It is your, your democratic right. And for the moment, I'll say thank you very much to George and Stephen. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.